When he belts out, how does it feel? It just goes right into you. And there's a sense of kind of a self-righteous anger that's in it. Yeah, something even simpler for me was the fact that he didn't seem to really care how he sounded. Because to me, from a, a vocal standpoint, it wasn't exactly pretty in terms of what you were used to. It was mm -hmm. very unique. Yeah. I was struck by its uniqueness, not so much by, oh, what a gorgeous voice. It wasn't the voice. It was his message. It was the way he was delivering it. You are listening to The Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 74, Transcendent Tunes, Dylan's Revolutionary Epiphany. Robert Zimmerman, a.k.a. Bob Landy, a.k.a. Robert Milkwood Thomas, a.k.a. Blind Boy Grunt, a.k.a. Bob Dylan. Uh -huh. He has used all those names in his career as recording names. But we know him best as Bob Dylan. And the tune in question is... Like a Rolling Stone. Like a Rolling Stone. Voted by Rolling Stone magazine as the greatest pop song of all time. Yeah, they had a 500 list. Yeah, it was number one. Uh, the Rolling Stone magazine named after the song, mm -hmm. as it turns out as well. Mm -hmm. So it could be a little biased. Yeah, a little biased. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think few people would argue that it's yeah. a great tune. Whether it's number one, I guess, is an arguable point. Yeah, I think everybody's familiar with it, of course. I first became familiar with it when it was released in 1965. I was 14 years old. Yeah, summer of 65, June. Yeah. I was in my parents' cigar store. The radio was always tuned to Chum FM. Chum AM, I should say, not FM at the time. AM. Yeah. And the Beatles were in their heyday. Number one on the charts that year was Help. Mm -hmm. Number and two was Like a Rolling Stone. Yeah, and I was 12 at the time and recording on my newly purchased Panasonic reel-to-reel -reel recorder, which <laughs> I'd saved the entire summer for. Which you apparently bought off a rabbi, as the story goes. <laughs> well, that's what they told me came from a rabbi, yeah. <laughs> was it blessed? <laughs> Must was have it been. kosher? Sure played like it was blessed. <laughs> was it all above board and kosher? That's yeah. the question. Yeah, in 65, we're talking Beatles in the heyday of their kind of early to mid rock period when it's She Loves You, Yeah, 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 I Want to Hold Your Hand, and Help was kind of later on in that uh, process. Yeah, and they were, were, well, know, actually in 65, they were beginning their shift to Rubber Soul and Revolver, which yeah. is what a lot of people credit as their shift. Yeah, they weren't yet in their Maharishi Mahesh Yogi Not period. Yet. and uh, They're still know, about a year and a half away. Yeah, Sergeant Pepper was mm -hmm. later, right? Two years later. Two yeah. years later, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so here it is, 1965, it's in the middle of the decade, a decade that saw musically that folk music really at its heyday in a way mm -hmm. with Vietnam and protest songs and that sort of thing. The rise of the young Joan Baez, Joan Baez yeah. Dylan, of course, uh, Donovan yeah. in England, mm -hmm. the British invasion. And in 1965, this song is released and there's a story behind how difficult it was to release it in a way and takes the folk 
music world, especially by storm. Mm -hmm. People felt stabbed in the back. And maybe before you even get to that, maybe yeah. you talk a little bit about what it was originally in terms of lyrically, the number of pages of material. Well, yeah. Dylan <laughs> said, uh, this long piece of vomit, quote unquote, 20 pages long, and out of it I took like a rolling stone and made it into a single. Mm -hmm. And I'd never written anything like that before, he says. And it suddenly came to me that this was what I should do. After writing that, I wasn't interested in writing a novel or a play. I just had too much meaning too much of his previous life in a way. Mm -hmm. I want to write songs. And by that, he meant real, truthful, honest, hard-rocking songs. He was writing, Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, pardon my impression. Yeah, more traditional. Yeah, Tangled Up in Blue, like all these really good songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was famous, of course, by this point, mm -hmm. and which is why his fans felt so kind of betrayed by his shift into electro... Dylan mm. goes, goes electric. Goes electric. Mm -hmm. But before we get to his stage performances and what happened there, let's talk about the recording. Sure. The song ended up being six minutes, 13 seconds, seconds long. Right. Uh, which, which, by standards of 1965, was extremely long. It was more than double the usual length. No radio station would play a six-minute-long song. Or so it was assumed. Yeah. yeah. And so it was um, published through Columbia Records. The release director at Columbia, Considine was his name, mm -hmm. when he got a hold of this thing, said, oh, this is way too long, and kind of relegated to a, a slush pile where it would probably not be uh, aired on the radio or sent to radio stations at all. Mm -hmm. But he decided to kind of test it out. So he took an acetate of the song to a local club where the DJ played it and ended up playing it over and over again all night long until it wore the thing out. People loving it to death. It was a club where there were celebrities and other DJs and people in the music industry. And by the next day, there was so much clamor from these people to all the radio stations in the area mm -hmm. that it ended up getting played. And so that's kind of how it made it onto the air, but through public opinion saying, you've got to play this, it's right. too good. And no doubt they thought, Dylan, Electric, mm -hmm. this is not necessarily going to be good. But anyway, just to wind the clock back, so he writes this 20 pages of vomit, <laughs> as he put it. Well, But what's also important about yeah. that is... Under what circumstances does he begin this process, writes the 20 pages? This is a Bob Dylan that's coming from? Well, he's, he's first of all, he's come back from a, a very tiring tour. Mm -hmm. And he's... In England. Of, in England. He's kind of disillusioned. He's kind of tired. He's at the end of his tether when it comes to folk music. And he's beginning to feel like he needs to do something else and not sure what. He's very much kind of like a Rolling Stone at that point, kind of unmoored and lost and free in a good way to create something different. So he writes this stuff kind of without stopping in a technique where you just keep writing, 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 writing. And I've tried that too. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting, like stream of consciousness. Yep. So he does that. He vomits out, quote unquote, 20 pages of stuff and then begins to see something in it that could be a song mm -hmm. and then creates the... Begins to refine the process. Yeah, yeah. writes the lyrics to the song. Never understood that it ain't no good. You shouldn't let other people get your kicks for you. When it comes to recording, uh, apparently there was no sheet music when he went into the studio with the band, mm -hmm. who included uh, Mike Bloomfield on guitar, incredible guitar player. And so basically, as it's told, they started to kind of learn and get a handle on the song with each take. It Almost like a jamming session. Yeah, kind of organically finding mm -hmm. the song 
the words were already there, but finding the song, finding the rhythms. And he started out uh, writing the song in three-quarter time, which is a waltz time. It's slower. And he decided that wasn't good enough. So on day two, they launch into it in 4-4 time, and they begin to find the thing until the fourth take when they kind of nail it, although they're not sure they've nailed it. <laughs> and they do 11 more takes. Right, and that's when they pick number four as the take. Afterwards, yeah, they decide number four is the best. Interesting story about that. Tom Wilson is the producer. It was the last thing he produced with Dylan. Mm -hmm. And he invited a friend of his, a guitar player named Al Cooper, to the session. And Al Cooper got there, and he realized very quickly that the guitar players that were on hand were way better than he was. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't going to be able to contribute much there. So he decides to go into the booth and listen to some of the takes as they unfold. And then he gets an idea, because he's also a bit of an organ player. Right. Not an expert, but a bit of an organ player. Mm -hmm. And he tells Tom Wilson, I think I have an idea for an organ part. Tom Wilson says, well, I don't know, you're not really a good organ player. And Tom Wilson gets pulled away by a phone call. Al Cooper goes right into the session and sits down at the organ that was vacated by the piano player. And when Tom Wilson comes back, he sees him at the organ. But to his credit, he doesn't say, get the hell out of there, Al. Just lets him he do says, his thing. Right, let's go. Let's just do this thing. Mm -hmm. And Al Cooper unleashes this organ background that we hear on the final take, which without it, I think the song would not be what it is. Right. And the reason why it's there is because Bob Dylan himself asked for it. When he heard the organ, no, what I'm saying he said, is, I want it turned up. I yeah, want the volume yeah. on that up. I he like he the was sound instrumental in getting that piece into the song. Yeah, no pun intended. He was no instrumental in yeah, no <laughs> getting the organ in. I thought that was a really interesting story. Uh, one of the inspirations for the song was Hank Williams' song, Lost Highway. And there's a line in it that goes, uh, I'm a rolling stone, I'm alone and lost. They say that Dylan got his inspiration for the title, like a rolling stone, from that. And also from the phrase, a rolling stone gathers no moss. Everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. phrase, um, right? Some say it's also kind of an inner reflection put into song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To this day, there's kind of a debate about what the song's about. People think in general about people being knocked off their high horses and having to come to earth and kind of find themselves again without the benefit of being in high society. Mm -hmm. Some people think it's about Edie Sedgwick, who was a debutante who connected herself with um, Andy Warhol. Oh, yeah. yeah, that Edie Sedgwick connected herself with Andy Warhol and was in that inner circle, high society, artsy-fartsy, kind of fake in a way. And then she kind of got dumped by Warhol and had an affair with Dylan mm -hmm. before he got married to Sarah Lowndes. And so people think it might have been about Edie Sedgwick, that tune. And then other people think it was about Dylan himself, that he was writing about his own feeling of being lost and coming down from this high place to a place of mm -hmm. Speaking of which, in a quote uh, taken 20 years later, 1985, he said that regarding the shift in rock music to American folk music, his comment was, quote, the thing about rock and roll is that for me, anyway, it wasn't enough. There were great catchphrases and driving pulse rhythms, but the songs weren't serious or didn't reflect life in a realistic way. I knew that when I got into folk music, it was more of a serious type of thing. The songs are filled with more despair, more sadness, more triumph, more faith in the supernatural, much deeper feelings, end of quote. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, very much so. And when I heard that song when I was 14 years old, when you were, what, 13? 12. 12. Hmm. Neither of us really understood those lyrics. No. There was depth in them and sophistication to them, which was unusual for the times. Usual rock songs were really simple, love you, love you, miss you, love you, kinds of stuff. And here he's going on about a mystery tramp and Napoleon in rags and these phrases in this song, which I had no clue about. But even without understanding the depth of the lyrics and the meaning, there was something to me about the melody, the rhythm, and the different style that really appealed to me. It wasn't like anything I'd heard up to that point, as you were describing. And perhaps for me personally, I felt somewhat of a connection, even though I didn't fully comprehend, certainly not to the level I comprehend today. Yeah. But there was something in the song that emitted a certain depth, a certain sadness as well, and a certain reality uh, switch. It was like he was talking about things that were happening, even if I didn't comprehend fully. Just the Rolling Stone, and I had been listening to other songs that had that word in it, like The Temptations. Yeah. Papa was a Rolling Stone. That whole idea of something that's transient and can't kind of grasp and keeps moving and rolling like a Rolling Stone. Yeah, and know? also just the raw emotion of it, right. which as a kid, that's what I got too. Mm-hmm. Was when he belts out, how does it feel? I mean, it just it just goes right into you. And there's a sense of kind of a self-righteous anger that's in it. Yeah, something even simpler for me was the fact that he didn't seem to really care how he sounded. Because to me, from a vocal standpoint, it wasn't exactly pretty in terms of what you were used to. It's mm-hmm. very unique. Yeah. I was struck by its uniqueness, not so much by, oh, what a gorgeous voice. It wasn't the voice. It was his message. It was the way he was delivering it. That's right. Yeah. Unlike the pretty voices, I mean, Joan Baez has a beautiful voice. Yes, she does. Right? Um, and, and they hooked up later, too. <laughs> and I think her <laughs> writing time. rivals Dylan. Hmm. Yeah, in different ways. In different ways. Uh, really, yeah. you have to say Dylan, along with McCartney and Lennon, would have to be two of the greatest songwriters. Yeah, and the Beatles admit that they were influenced by Bob Dylan. In fact, yeah. George Harrison was a lifelong fan mm-hmm. and eventually hooked up with him as part of the Traveling Wilburys. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was Dylan, it was George Harrison, it Roy was Orbison. Roy Orbison, and Tom Petty. Tom Petty. And to this day, it's a great album, if anybody wants to listen to it. Bob Dylan's the only remaining... Living. Yes, as it turns out. Isn't that something? He keeps going on. He's what now? 70... 77. 77. Received the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. Yeah. And there was he, even controversy around that because he didn't show up to he get it. He didn't show up to get it, yeah. A lot of people thought, what the hell is he doing winning a Nobel Prize for literature? What? Mm-hmm. But really, when you read his lyrics of his songs, it is literature. It's the literature of the balladeer. Yes. You know? Well, he was a poet. He was a poet, yeah. although he might not have, you know, necessarily admitted such, it. Because he know. didn't like titles. Didn't like titles, didn't like being pigeonholed at all, which is why he had a tough time with the media. And if you listen to any of his interviews, mm-hmm. he's always given the media a really hard time Basically accusing them of uh, making up stories for entertainment purposes. Either that or he sounds somewhat aloof. Yeah, he's constantly lecturing them mm-hmm. <laughs> in different ways and being kind of abrasive with them. But that's refreshing and he's kept that. He's never lost that sense of, I'm me and you'll never understand me really. You'll never get to the heart Well, of let's take that right back to when they first performed the song. Yeah, now talk about defiance mm-hmm. and abrasion. Box, box. So, what's your story? We ended up touring all over North America, 
all over Australia, all over Europe, and every night, just about every place we played, people threw stuff at us, <laughs> booed us, and sometimes charged the stage finally. When this is happening, you can't help but think once in a while, maybe we're doing something wrong. <laughs> Box, box. So they performed the song on this tour in England. They're booed. In England, they're booed. People are yelling, Judas! Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he turns to them and he says, I don't believe you to the crowd. I You're know. a liar, he says. <laughs> and he turns to his band and says, apparently he said, play it effing loud. Yep. And that's what Robbie Robertson said in an interview about that period. He said, well, we just played louder. Yeah, and what's great about it is, is that they were being booed mm -hmm. and even having things thrown at them on stage. That's right. And then when it's all over, he turns around to Robbie Robertson and he says, great show. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he does. Yeah. And it was a great show. I mean, I've seen excerpts from these performances. He does a version of... Ain't gonna work at Maggie's farm no, no, no more. more. And Mike Bloomfield is on guitar. It's kind of a call response where he, he does each line and then Mike Bloomfield does a riff mm -hmm. on his Telecaster guitar. Mm -hmm. And it's scintillating. He holds nothing back. And I can imagine those poor folkies listening to this screeching, ravaging guitar work that mm -hmm. Mike Bloomfield is throwing at them, plus all the other electrics. Robbie Robertson was there in that band as well, from the band. And with their mouths open and in disgust as well. So fascinating that he did that, and he wasn't contrite on the stage. He's basically saying, screw you. It's just music, yep. and I'm playing it. I'm, I'm playing it. I'm giving this to you. This is me. Mm -hmm. it's no, I'm no different from what I was three years ago. It's still me. Yep. It's just me doing something different, fresh, something more fulfilling for me as well. Mm -hmm. He's basically saying that the artist has a right to be fulfilled, regardless of what their audience expects Sure, of and them. if there was ever an example... It goes contrary to following the crowd. Mm -hmm. Here's a guy that really said, no, I'm going to do it. And uh, eventually, yeah. everyone got on his page. Yeah, he, he never looked back. You right. know? Don't look back, it's all right. <laughs> he um, carried on, and he's, he's never stopped. Still doing he's it. He's still playing in his late 70s. Mm -hmm. I think he was asked about that once, and he just said, it's what I love. It's what I do. Why would I stop? What kind of a question is that? Mm -hmm. Again, he berated the questioner for asking a, a question like right. that. Well, his contention, too, is, is that's part of what the press has to do almost. Yeah. Is yeah. ask these kind of innocuous questions. Sure, yeah. sure. There have been films made about him, of course. No Way Home was made by Scorsese a number of years and ago. And it was a woman. PBS. Who played the part. Oh, that's right. Yes, that was fascinating. <laughs> Different the take. actress. Oh, I don't. Who was it? Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett, yes, now I remember. She now did a remarkable job. I don't know if you saw the film, but uh, she did a great job. And then there was another docu called Don't Look Back, which followed him on his 1966 touring. Right, that's uh, where you've got all the backroom stuff happening? Yeah, backroom mm -hmm. stuff. He meets Donovan, there's all these discussions, there's fights, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the film, and it's great in that way. But, you know, they're all saying the same thing, that in three years, from 63 to 66, he produced six albums. Yep of fantastic original music 
which was unheard of. The first one was Free Wheelin' back in 63. Then Times They Are a Changin' in 64. Highway 61. Well, that's later. Another later. side of Bob Dylan in right. 64 again, bringing it all back home in 65. Then Highway 61 Revisited mm-hmm. in 65, where this song, Like a Rolling Stone, appears. Then Blonde on Blonde, another fabulous album, a great album in 66. What other famous songwriter has ever done that in that kind of concentrated period of time, mm-hmm. produced that much yep. brilliant work? He was in Beatle territory. Oh, yeah. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud. The notes for his music, the four sheets of note paper from the Roger Smith Hotel in Washington, upon which the song was written, was written, yeah, just uh, was auctioned off at Sotheby's in New York in 2014, and two million. $2 million, yeah. Incredible. A new record for incredible, you know, popular music manuscript. Now, before we close this podcast, I, I would love to uh, explore the lyrics a little bit because yeah. I think they're not only good lyrics yeah. and were not only represented well in terms of the rhythms that they chose, but the value of the words. Mm-hmm. Well, what would you like to say about, uh, about some of these lyrics? For starters, even just the basic one, which is, how does it feel? Those are four very powerful words. Yeah. Mel cuts across many regions. How does it feel? And Mm -hmm. then he says, to be on your own with no direction home, a complete unknown, like Mm -hmm. a rolling stone. Yeah, you can take it two ways, right? You can take Mm -hmm. it as a negative, like he's tearing down this high horse, this person who was on their high horse, and now they're in the streets and they're a rolling stone. They've lost everything. But on the other hand, he's saying, you're free, like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone. You're invisible now. You have no secrets to conceal. I love that That's line. That's a great line, yeah, a right? Great one. Yeah. You know, what yeah. is he saying there? He's saying when you've got stuff, when you're at the top, you have to be untruthful. You can't be authentic, mm-hmm. right? Because if, if people mm-hmm. realized, you'd lose what you've got. But if you have nothing, you've got nothing to lose. Exactly. You're invisible now. You've got no secrets. That's right. Then he goes right? on to say, see. people. Call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Mm-hmm. Now you don't seem so proud. Yeah. About having to be scrounging your next, next meal. meal. It's pretty heavy. <laughs> and how does it feel? Mm-hmm. How does it feel to be there? Yeah. He's asking each of us, how does it feel to be where we are? Yeah, you know? exactly. Because people say that every day. How do you feel? How do you feel about that? Right. How do you feel about that? Right. It's also humbling yeah. Everyone can go through these experiences regardless of social or economic status. Sure. The other thing that makes this song universal, and it makes a lot of Dylan songs universal songs, and could be played at rock concerts and stadiums and stuff like that. Bob Dylan never tried to write a song that would please the multitudes. He no, wrote he, for from himself, his heart. From his heart. Yeah, yeah, he wrote from his own experiences, from his depths, which is what a good balladeer does. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a, s- a sense of authentic. Authenticity, There's authenticity, authenticity yeah. to his that, writing. that comes from him, even mm-hmm. if you hate his voice, mm-hmm. even if you can't stand that he went electric. The authentic nature of his poet songs, mm-hmm. in a sense, reminds you of Leonard Cohen yeah, in that similar. way, right? Mm-hmm. Although Leonard was a bit more subdued yeah. and remained kind of a but folky. But the idea behind it is similar. Yeah. Leonard remained kind of a folky in a way, through mm-hmm. much of it. It's just artists who are maintaining their own persona. Sure, like Joni Mitchell. Yeah, you know, who, exactly. Who was, I love Joni who Mitchell Who was herself and yet evolved, just mm-hmm. like Dylan did. Mm-hmm. 
he allowed other songwriters after him to write in the way he wrote, which is to just kind of get it all down in a big blast and craft the song out of that rather than just trying to create the lyrics as the final lyrics right away. Mm -hmm. To just create a lot of writing and then draw from that. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2008, the Nobel Prize in 2016, mm -hmm. among other Pretty remarkable. Awards. Yeah. So the world has recognized him and his music as being earth-changing in some ways. So that's why we've got a transcendent tune on our hands mm -hmm. that's six minutes and 13 seconds long. We'll have played segments of it through this podcast. Yeah, this is the second song that we've selected that is in the mid-60s. Yes, that's right. We have to get ourselves out of the 60s. Yeah, yeah. It's, not a, it's not an easy decade to get out of with it because there's so much. I know. It's so rich. Us baby boomers. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, of course, we're biased. We had our first uh, sexual experiences yeah. in the 60s. How can we leave the 60s? We're stuck there now. Well, in the 60s, we were having our first sexual experience with ourselves. <laughs> Speak for yourself, <laughs> big boy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So this music came along and uh, I was just kind of taken along on the rhythms of of this song, mm -hmm. wafting like this rapids just shooting down a river, and the words were there in the background in a way, because I didn't understand fully what he was going on about, but the push of that music with that organ there moving it along. Yeah, and you know what I found interesting was, typically when you listen to a song, if you recall at the time, songs were two and a half, three, three and a half minutes long. Yeah. It was hard to kind of imagine a song that you could listen to double that and not lose interest. Well, other examples would be The Doors Light My Fire. Fire yeah. There was a shorter version and there was a longer version that stations often played. Uh, MacArthur's Park, I think, was also quite a long mm -hmm. cut, as I recall, mm -hmm. right? So it paved the way for radio to take chances and play longer songs, which is great because why would you just want to pinhole music into three-minute three segments? Right, right, which is also what led to the thematic approach to record making the album became in part popular because of that extension the yes. record itself extended a long play right it, it would change the way music was put together yeah. not only as individual song units but as concept became, artists artists became freer mm -hmm. to think conceptually like genesis or the prog rock folks in the 70s mm -hmm. wrote entire albums of really long cuts yeah which created extended statements like this song does it's mm -hmm. an extended statement Wow. I love it. Two bits. What can I say? Yeah. And like a rolling stone as we roll out of here. <laughs> roll some stones in our direction. Yes. Those stones are called comments. We want to hear comments, from you. Comments, voice messages. <laughs> we really do want to hear back from you because we want to keep working on this podcast. We want to keep improving, fine-tuning. Yeah. We want to hear, how does it feel? How does it feel? Tell us. To be on your own like yeah. a rolling stone. Exactly. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao, Harry. Oh, how does it feel? The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production, available at thesillpodcast.com. Mm -hmm.